So Exodus chapter 5, and that's starting at verse 1. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out. Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, This is what Pharaoh says. I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, Complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding, Why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh, Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet are told, make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work, you will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, May the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh, and his officials have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Well, we used to drive a Vauxhall Zafira, which had been a great car, a really great car, until it developed an oil leak. We took it to the mechanic, and the mechanic said, well, I think this is going to fix it, and I'll do this first. He did, and we hoped it would be okay, but it wasn't, and it kept on leaking. So we took the car back to the mechanic, and he fixed something else, and he said, I think this will be okay, but it wasn't, and it kept on leaking. And so we took it back to him a third time, and the third time said, well, I'm going to do this thing. It's a really big fix, but I'm really sure it'll be okay. And he did it, and it was okay, mostly. Now and again, we saw just a few black spots on the drive when the car wasn't there and did wonder. And I have to admit, I was a little bit relieved when it was written off an accident, because I no longer needed to worry that the oil leak was going to return. Now, we all know what it's like for something to seem to have been fixed 
And then we find there are still problems. And perhaps as we read Exodus 5 this week, and particularly in light of what we saw last week in Exodus chapter 4, perhaps it can feel a little bit like that story as well. Because it seems at the end of Exodus chapter 4, all the problems that have been there so far in the book of Exodus have been fixed and everything seems okay. Moses' doubts have been addressed and dealt with. The people have been given signs to see, to convince them the Lord is with Moses. And then they gather there at the end of chapter 4 and they hear God's word through Moses. They see the signs that God has given there to, to verify him as God's appointed prophet. And they believe and they worship God together and it's a great end. There at the end of chapter 4, they bow down and they worship. And you think, well, it's all going to go fine from here. Moses and Aaron will go into Pharaoh. He'll let the people go. And they're going to walk away from Egypt immediately. But of course, as we read in chapter 5, when Moses and Aaron do go to Pharaoh and they see him, well, everything seems to go wrong. Pharaoh doesn't listen. He doesn't let the people go. In fact, he tightens his grip on them. And he turns the people against Moses and against the Lord. So what's going on? Why the setbacks of this chapter? Why does God allow it to work out like this? Well, part of the reason is to teach one of the biggest lessons in the book of Exodus. Because this question at the heart of chapter 5 and chapter 6 that we'll come to next week is... Uh, so well expressed in Pharaoh's opening words in verse 2, where he asks the question, who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? And you might say that is a central question of the whole of the book of Exodus. Who is the Lord? Is it Pharaoh or is it the Lord God Yahweh? And this chapter is, is a part of an extended power struggle that will play out between the Lord and between Pharaoh until the people of God are finally set free. So we're going to work through chapter 5 together, and we're going to see these competing claims of power. Competing claims of power made first of all by the Lord, and then by Pharaoh. And then we'll see how the people respond to what is said. So let's start in verse 1. As we ask this question, who is the Lord? And we see that the Lord... Sorry, God proclaims that he is the Lord. God proclaims that he alone is the Lord. This is in verse 1 and in verse 3, because Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and they deliver this message that God has given them to declare to the king of Egypt. And they speak this word from God to Pharaoh. And in this word, the Lord God says, I am king. The Lord God says that he is the one true and living God. He is the Lord and not Pharaoh. We're going to see, I think it's five things here where this happens. First of all, we see that, that the Lord God speaks with authority as he declares that he is the Lord. Look there at the first opening words in verse 1 of Moses and Aaron's address to Pharaoh. They say, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Now, now that phrase there, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, Pharaoh would have recognized as the beginning, the introduction of a word from God. It's, it's not just a way of introducing anyone's speech. This is a way of introducing the God of heaven speaking. 
So in this, God is not making a request to an equal power whom he recognizes. He is declaring his authority over Pharaoh, and he is calling Pharaoh to listen to him. Then he says in the second way, he says he claims his people. How does uh, the Lord describe his people? He calls them in verse 1, my people. And then in verse 2, he declares that he is the God of the Hebrews. Pharaoh's slavery of the people of God in Egypt was a claim that they were his. He was asserting that they were his people. But now God is saying, they don't belong to you. These are the Lord's people. They are his possession, and he is claiming them for himself. But then also, having claimed his people, we see that the Lord commands Pharaoh to let them go. Look at the phrasing of what is said. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. He says, let my people go. That's a command. It's not a request. It's not a polite thing for him to consider. God is saying to the king of Egypt, let them go. And then he further declares his authority when he calls his people to worship him. Look at the motivation in verse 1. They are to leave so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. And then we get further detail as we drop down to verse 3, where we see they are to go into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. So the goal of this exodus, of this coming out of Egypt, is that the people might worship the Lord as God. And that's significant because as we worship we proclaim who is ultimate. We declare who comes first in our lives. And so this call for the people of God to worship him is a call from God for authority over them. He calls them to worship. And then you'll notice also at the end of verse 3, in these words to Pharaoh, there is a warning of consequences. In verse 3, Moses and Aaron warn that if they do not obey God, God may strike us with plagues or with the sword. Now, this warning isn't just for the Israelites, it's for the Egyptians too. It's a collective us there, and it includes Pharaoh. And again, this is a, a statement of authority over the Israelites and indeed over Pharaoh as well. Because in warning of consequences, what is God saying? Well, God says, I have the authority to carry this out. I have the power to carry this out. And there is no one above me. And so through these words, God is making his claim over his people and also over Pharaoh. He is, in that sense, teaching Pharaoh who the Lord is and where Pharaoh sits in relationship to the Lord, that he is not an equal, he is not a, 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 a rival on the same level as the Lord, that he is under God, who alone is God. God's words here to Pharaoh are a reminder of what the Bible teaches about a legitimate role and position of any governing authority. In the book of Romans, in chapter 13, in verse 1, we read that governing authorities are established by God. And so we read these words, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. 
the authorities that exist have been established by God. So these authorities are put in place by God, but also notice their authority isn't ultimate because they are under the Lord. In Romans 13 verse 4, those authorities are referred to as God's servants. And so we read also, For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if they do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword with no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So what is being taught in the interaction with Pharaoh in Exodus and by Paul in Romans 13 is that God has not given universal authority to governing authorities. They are under God. And his commands are above them. He comes first. His commands come first. Above anything the state might say. And it is significant here that Israel are to be set free so that they might worship God. That teaches us that the state does not have the right to regulate the worship of the living God. There have been times in history when the state has sought to do that by controlling what is said and controlling why whether God's people are free to worship him. And again and again, as you look through history, the people of God have resisted that because we do not believe the power of the state is ultimate. The freedom to worship God according to his commands alone is a vital mark of biblical Christianity. And it's significant that totalitarian regimes always seek to control Christian worship. You saw that in communism in the USSR. You see that today in China. Even when Christians are a small group, their public worship is targeted because Worship only according to God's command implies that God alone is king. Now, we should submit to governing authorities in the realms that God has given them, but we do so because God commands that, not because they are ultimate. So the challenge here is laid down to Pharaoh. Will he submit to the Lord? Let's see how he responds in his counterclaim. So the Lord, God proclaims that he is Lord. And now we come to see Pharaoh's response, where Pharaoh proclaims that he is the Lord. Because here he refuses the request that's made to let the Israelites go. But he also rejects the authority of the Lord God. Notice here that Pharaoh rejects God's authority. Look at verse 2 where he says, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Now that statement, I do not know the Lord, is not declaring ignorance on Pharaoh's part. Knowing in the Bible is about a relationship with someone. And what Pharaoh is saying is, I have no relationship to the God of the Bible. I do not accept his authority. He he has no right to speak to me. He has no right to command me. He does not have any position in Egypt. That's what he's saying. He's also rejecting God's command because he explicitly says there, verse 2, I will not let Israel go. Now that command there, I will not let them go, is expressed in the strongest possible way in the Hebrew. 
He's saying, the Lord cannot call them his people. They belong to me. I am going to keep hold of them. And so we also see that he rejects God's word. He does this in the response to the command, but also he does it explicitly in verse 9 when he calls the words there of Moses and Aaron lies. Look down at verse 9. He says, make the people work harder. Sorry, make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Now, those lies are the words of Aaron and Moses, which are the word of the Lord. So what is he doing? Well, he is calling God's word a lie. And then we see that he rejects the warning of judgment. Pharaoh has just been warned of consequences if he will not obey. At the end of verse 3, there there was the the, the warning of consequences that the Lord may strike us with plagues or with the sword if we do not obey. But notice now that Pharaoh does not just ignore that warning. He doubles down on his awful treatment of the Israelite slaves because he wants to say, I do not fear the Lord. I do not accept that he has any right to come and punish me, to deal with me with consequences. He is not going to come and punish with plague or with the sword. And Pharaoh says, I am so confident of this, I will do even more evil against the Israelites. And so we see that in verses 6 to 14, that on the very same day, isn't that the mark of an angry person? They respond quickly. He calls the Egyptian slave drivers and the Israelite overseers because he is not going to go back to Moses and Aaron. He's going to reject them because they have claimed to be God's messengers and he has no time for God's messengers. And then he issues his own command through them in the place of God's command. Now, when that command is relayed to the people, the phrasing that is used exactly mirrors the phrasing that Moses and Aaron used in declaring God's word. This idea of competing claims of authority. Back in verse 1, the phrasing was, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Now jump down to verse 10, and you'll notice, then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, this is what Pharaoh says. It's exactly the same phrasing. Because what Pharaoh is doing is he is sending his own prophets, the slave drivers and the overseers, to introduce his authoritative word to the people because he is challenging God's authority. So what's the command? Well, the command is that that the straw needed to make the bricks will no longer be provided for the Israelites. And instead, they must gather it for themselves. Now, to understand what this meant, we need to understand how bricks were made in ancient Egypt. And they were made by mixing mud with straw. And then when you bound together this mixture, you would put it in a mold in the shape of a brick, and then you would dry it in the heat of the sun. The straw was there to give strength to the bricks. It would hold the bricks together. So in no longer providing the straw, Pharaoh creates great hardship for the people of God. The best straw 
would already have been harvested and collected together by the Egyptians. So as they go and look for straw in the fields, what do they find? Well, only stems in the ground. As we read on in verse 12, we learn this means the Israelites have to scatter all over Egypt to find sufficient straw. And all they find, verse 12, is stubble to use for straw. Because the best straw is already gone. This makes their task more time-consuming because they have to get the straw, but it also makes it more prone to failure because the bricks would have been brittle without good straw to bind the mud together. So he makes the task hard and all of that, but then notice the real point of pressure is that alongside all of that, the quota for the bricks remains unchanged. Now, if you notice in the text, that cycle of the, re- the, the statement about this is repeated three times. There's three statements of exactly the same scenario, of this building up of difficulties for the people of God. And that's deliberate. It's deliberate so that we do not miss how wrong this is, so that we feel, so that we really feel how hard it must have been for the Israelites. Because this is wickedness of the deepest kind. Now, before we move on, did you notice the granular level of historical detail in the account of what is going on with the straw? All the details of what Pharaoh does here matches with what we know about how straw was made and how they organized the slave groups in Egypt at the time. From other sources, we know that the Egyptians commonly used slave labor in their construction. We also know that those slaves were used to make bricks just as described here, and they were made just as the description is here. So we know that this matches the historical background as well, but also we know that the way the Egyptians organized these slave groups was exactly as the text says. They had Egyptian slave drivers over them all, and then they installed middle managers of overseers taken from the slave peoples. And the way that they made sure that the productivity was kept up was that daily quotas were imposed upon those middle managers to ensure that they got the people to work as they wanted to. So the details bring out the wickedness, but they also demonstrate the reliability of this account. Because in getting the details right, Moses is demonstrating historical accuracy in what is going on. So Pharaoh is raising the pressure. Pharaoh is intensifying his persecution because he wants to reject that God has the claim to judge. And then finally, he rejects God's claim for worship. Pharaoh wants to replace the worship of God through sacrifice in the wilderness with ongoing service to him. There's a number of times in the passage when Pharaoh tells the people to get to work, to get back to their work, and perhaps the most stark is in verse 18. Now, get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. Now, this phrase, get to work, could also be translated, get to service. And indeed, in the Old Testament, the same phrase is sometimes translated, worship. 
So there in the command in verse 18, Pharaoh isn't just telling the people to get back to making bricks because he wants more buildings. He is telling them that he wants them to get back to serving, to get back, to, you might say, to worshipping him rather than the God of the Bible. He wants to steal the worship that is due to God alone by making them work even harder in service to him. Now, there's an interesting and important link here to the command in the Ten Commandments to rest on the seventh day. Because the Sabbath commandment that's given in Exodus 20, when it's given in Exodus 20, the people are told to rest to remember God's work in creation. But then when the Sabbath command is repeated in Deuteronomy 5, the reason to rest is different. The people are called to rest, but they are called to rest to remember that they were slaves in Egypt, but God brought them out. So part of what God is teaching us and part of what we are declaring in our rest from our labors on the Lord day, Lord's day is that we are not slaves to our work anymore. We can rest because we don't serve our jobs, we don't serve our education, we don't serve our sports. We don't serve our employers, our teachers, or our sports coaches above the Lord. We serve God alone. And we rest from our labors one day in seven as one way in which we testify that we are ultimately servants of the Lord God. And we won't be mastered by anyone or anything else. So in that way, the Lord's Day isn't just good for our bodies, and it is. It's also a testimony to ourselves and to the watching world. So Moses here, sorry, Pharaoh here, is systematically denying everything God is saying through Moses. He's rejecting God's authority. He's rejecting God's word. He's rejecting God's command. He's rejecting God's warning of judgment and God's claim to be worthy of worship. And in doing so, Pharaoh is making his counterclaim that he is the Lord. So in that way, that is how this chapter is is working out. God is saying, I'm the Lord, and Pharaoh is trying to claim that he is the Lord. Now next week, we will hear what God says in response to Pharaoh's claims in chapter 6. And as the weeks go on, we'll see God backing up his words through his demonstration of his power through the plagues and through the exodus. But now... I want us to return to the question of why God put his people through the setback of this chapter after the heights of chapter 4. In his commentary on this passage, John Calvin gives six reasons why the Lord does this. And we have time to think about two. And I think they're the most important. First of all, the Lord allows this to show the people of Israel the true nature of the tyrant to whom they are enslaved. Because in this chapter, Pharaoh shows his true colors. And the people of God, the Israelites, need to see those so they should never want to go back again. So God is disclosing by allowing Pharaoh to do this just what Pharaoh is like. But then also... 
The Lord wants to show his people the true depth of their slavery to Pharaoh. Someone has said there are two great rescues in the Exodus. Getting God's people out of the heart of Egypt and then getting Egypt out of the hearts of God's people. There's two big rescues. And that second rescue that goes on in the hearts of God's people will take much longer. And that is part of what God is unveiling in this chapter. We see just how captivated the Israelites are to Pharaoh in how they respond to the removal of the straw. And that will be our third point, because their response shows us the true depth of slavery. We've seen God declaring he is the Lord. We have seen Pharaoh proclaiming, declaring that he is the Lord. And now we see how the people respond. And in their response, we see the true depth of slavery. It's a remarkable thing, the twist there in verse 15, because having received the order from Pharaoh that the straw should be taken away, where do the Israelite overseers go to appeal? They go to Pharaoh. They ask him to help them. Instead of crying out to God for help, they go to cry out to the one who has been oppressing them. And look at how they describe themselves in verse 16. The first two words of the verse. Who are they? They are your servants. They are Pharaoh's servants. That is how they see themselves. And so they come to Pharaoh, and it's almost as if they can't believe he's done it. They're checking if there hasn't been a mistake. Or perhaps the slave drivers have unilaterally introduced this change without checking with Pharaoh. But then in Pharaoh's response in verses 17 and 18, they learn how evil Pharaoh really is. Because he mocks them, he calls them lazy. He confirms his command to remove the straw. He maintains the quota and he sends them back to work, to service of him. And then having again seen the true nature of Pharaoh, who do they now blame for what's happened? Who do the Israelite overseers go to to blame for what's going on? Do they blame Pharaoh? No, they don't. They leave Pharaoh and they go looking for Moses and Aaron. And in verse 20 and 21, they call down God's judgment upon Moses and Aaron who had brought God's word and were coming to rescue them. And they lay all the blame at Moses and Aaron's feet. Their actions and their words show the true nature of the slavery in their hearts. Look down at verse 21. In some ways I prefer the starkness of the ESV here when they bring their accusation to Moses and Aaron. What do they say? They say, you have made us stink. The word there is like rotten fish. Stink like rotten fish in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. How sad it is to see that they are more concerned with how Pharaoh sees them than how God might see them. And then they disclose that their greatest fear is not the judgment of God, 
which has been spoken of in chapter verse 3, but rather the sword of Pharaoh, who they now believe is intent upon killing them. They do exactly what Jesus warns against in Matthew 10, verse 28, where he says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I wonder, can I ask you this morning, who or what do you fear most? That is a key diagnostic question to test if your heart is captive to something like Pharaoh. Because if you find the answer is anything other than the Lord, then you have found the false God to which you are enslaved. You see, in these final verses, friends, we are seeing the true extent of the captivity of the Israelites to Pharaoh. We're seeing that their enslavement is not just an enslavement in their chains. It is an enslavement in their hearts. And we are seeing just how much, just how much they need a rescuer to bring them out to freedom and just how unable they are themselves to get free. Friends, the captivity of the Israelites in Egypt is a picture of our captivity to sin. Because the Bible tells us we are enslaved to sin. And sin isn't just terrible in terms of the evil of our actions. It is also captivating such that we cannot break free. And we are blind to the depth of our captivity. You know, we all have sins in our lives that are like Pharaoh to the Israelites. They are captivating and controlling. And the problem is, in our hearts, we do not see how bad our sins are and we do not appreciate the depth of our captivity to them. If you disagree with me, just take one thing in your life that you know is wrong and you want to change and try to live differently just for one week. You won't do it, friends. You can't do it, friends. And when you try that, you will learn that you are deeply mastered by sin. Paul describes this slavery to sin in Romans chapter 7 where he says this, For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil I want to do, this I keep on doing. Maybe you feel that struggle in your heart. And maybe you find yourself saying what Paul says in verse 24 of Romans 7. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from the body, this body that is subject to death? Friends, you need a rescuer. You need a deliverer who has great power to set you free. And the Bible tells you that Jesus Christ is that rescuer. That only Christ can set you free. Only Christ can set you free because Jesus came to break the power of sin in condemning us. So that when he went to the cross, he paid the penalty that we deserve. So that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Sin captivates us through that condemnation where we're always feeling like we are accused by it. But God's word says to us, we have no condemnation if we're in Jesus Christ. And Jesus came to break the power of sin in captivating us to it by giving us new hearts and working in us by his spirit so that change is possible for every Christian. And for that reason, those who believe can say what Paul says in Romans 7.25. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so friends, through all the hardship of this chapter and in the struggle with sin that you experience in your life, that is what God is teaching He is teaching us that every other master is always going to harm us. And he is telling us that only he can deliver. And so whilst this chapter might have two declarations of lordship, there is only one true Lord. And he is the God of Israel. He is the king of the universe. And he has come in Jesus Christ to set you free. So that you might not be enslaved to sin like the Egyptians were. So that you might know freedom from that captivity. And you know what, friends? He's not harsh like like Pharaoh. He is gentle and humble. And his burden isn't heavy like that of sin. It's light and easy. And so as we close, let us hear his invitation to come to him. Because only he is powerful enough to cleanse us and to free us from sin. And only he is good enough so that when we serve him, we find true rest. And he says these words to us today. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Come to him, and know freedom. Amen. Our Lord and our God, as we have looked at your word, your word has been a mirror to our hearts. We have seen the depth of our sin and we have seen something of the depth of our captivity to sin. We thank you that just as you rescued the Israelites from Egypt, you have come in the Lord Jesus Christ to rescue us from our captivity to sin. We thank you that our Lord Jesus came to live and to die so that we might be free, so that we may not be captive or slaves to sin, and so that we can know that rescue, both now and into eternity. O Lord, help us, we pray, to look to Christ by faith. May we turn from all our own efforts to be free, And may we find freedom in the Son, 
who can set us free indeed. So bless your word to our hearts and use it for good, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.